0: I would say to anyone who is worried about struggling with their second book, particularly if it's a series or a longer series, do outline it and try to get a draft of book two done before book one is out. And I know it'll be hard and you'll want to maintain the momentum with book one, but it's more important to maintain the momentum of book two because you don't know what's going to happen with book one. Hello and welcome to The Writer's Mindset with me, Christina Adams. And me, Early Betts. Each week, we're here to bring you the strategies and advice you need to achieve your writing and publishing goals.
1: That's right. And this week, we're talking to our very own Christina Adams about Second Book Syndrome.
0: The Mummy's Curse aka the second book in the Afterlife Calls series, is out now. If you fancy a book with a sarcastic Egyptian mummy, a tumultuous mother-daughter relationship, and a little bit of romance, it's just the book for you. Check it out at your favorite ebook retailer or visit bookstoread.com forward slash The Mummy's Curse.
1: So then, second book syndrome, which is also sometimes called The Sophomore slump. Or in some circles, what the fuck do I do next? Second book syndrome is when the second thing you create is much harder to do than the first, like the second book in the series, the second movie in the series, etc. And you're worried about it not living up to the success of the first. You know, you're building momentum or you're trying to build momentum with the series, but the second book is just that little bit harder sometimes. But it's not even just about making sure the success of the first one is continued. Sometimes you can be reeling from the perceived failure of the first book and wondering how to fix that. It could also happen with the second book in a series, a second book in a new pen name, not just the second book you publish. But we can then look into how to avoid it and what we can say to someone who has it. In The Mummy's Curse, then, which is the second book in your Afterlife Calls series, did you hit a sophomore slump? I didn't. But that's
0: because I had such a massive one with my actual second book, which is What Happens in London, that I learned from the mistakes of that first series. And that is how I avoided it in my second and third series.
1: I see. So you're aware of it and worked against it. I like it. And how did you find the writing process for this book as a whole then differed compared to your previous books.
0: I spent so long working on what happens in New York that even though I kind of vaguely knew what would happen in what happens in London, I didn't really have much of a plan for it beyond this is going to happen to this character and that sort of thing. And so when I actually sat down to write it, it was kind of like my brain just exploded. And I had this wall that A term I really like is this wall of awful, because it's just all these negative emotions that are in front of you and blocking you from what you're trying to do. I can't remember who came up with that term, but I'll um, link to his website in the show notes if I can find it. Because... It is such a thing, particularly if you do struggle mentally sometimes, all these negative emotions get in the way. One thing I did for Hollywood Gossip and Afterlife Calls was that I had either some of it or all of it written before the first book was published. So because Hollywood Gossip was originally meant to be one book, when it actually came to the realization it needed to be five or six, I had a lot of the scenes for Hollywood Parents written anyway. So a lot of Hollywood gossip and Hollywood parents is though that original first book fleshed out into two books. And so it was much easier. And then when it came to Afterlife Calls, I already had the first four books kind of in my head planned out before book one was even published, before book one was even in dev edits. And so it was a lot easier for me um, to think about, Where I was going. It took me probably about six months to write the ghost score because I was dipping in and out of it and still kind of finding where I was going with it. But then once I did that, I wrote a first draft of The Mummy's Curse in like two weeks or something. I emphasize the fact that my first drafts are usually about 30,000 words, they're not complete books. I tend to flesh out a lot of it in the developmental edits, particularly in terms of subplots. And that's why I'm starting to outline things in more depth to try and streamline my editing process. And avoid some of the issues i hit with subplots but i found that because i had a lot of the second book written and certainly the core part of it when book one was published it was just so much easier and it felt like the pressure was off because I already knew what I was doing and I'd already written the most important parts of that book and kind of got over that hurdle before most people even knew that I was writing a fantasy
1: book. I see. Lots of learning from experience there. I like it. Out of interest, obviously the first one, The Ghost Call, is more about ghosts. What made you change your mind and include some nice mummies in there instead?
0: So these are minor spoilers. You'll find these in the blurb but I always knew that I wanted one or two of the characters to end up in a coma. And I was like, how can I tie this into the supernatural? How can I give it a subplot that's interesting? And I don't really know how my brain thought of mummies, but it must have just been some sort of weird association. Mummies, coma, maybe the mummies in a coma. It is like the weirdest version of like word association that my brain has ever come up with. But I guess you could say that it's evolved backwards. When did I start researching ancient Egypt? I'm not sure when I started researching ancient Egypt, but I just found it really fascinating, like their culture and how much we know about them compared to some other ancient civilizations. And it looks really cool and has some really cool history. There's a lot we can do with it. And yeah, there was probably something to do with my obsession with the 1999 version of the mummy that came into it. As well, but that wasn't an intentional influence. That was probably more of a subconscious one, in the same way that E.E. Holmes influenced the fact that I ended up writing a ghost story when I said I would never write fantasy again.
1: To be fair, the mummy is responsible for influencing all kinds of content you've come out with.
0: (laughs) There is that. Like, I may, to be fair, I've only referenced it in one of my courses so far that I can remember. I do talk about it a lot in the Facebook group.
1: It's it's a great film. It's a great series.
0: Minus the third film. We forget the My, third we film. We don't happened. talk about the
1: third film, but they didn't have second book syndrome or second sophomore slump. So when it came to the research, then obviously you had an interest in mummies anyway, but I imagine you didn't know everything you needed for the book. Where did you draw on for that kind of research?
0: Yeah, so actually before I became obsessed with the mummy, I wasn't that interested in ancient Egypt. And so after watching that, I I think I must have stumbled on a documentary on YouTube and been like that looks cool I'm gonna watch it and I remember this one weekend earlier in the year Millie and I basically sat on the sofa all weekend watching mummy documentaries that's not even a hyperbole that's literally how we spent an entire weekend watching documentaries Was probably my biggest source of research because it's quicker than reading a book a lot of the time and my brain can just process it a lot easier. And you've got the visuals and getting the visuals right when you're talking about a mummy is really important because the mummy in the mummy's curse isn't the kind of one you would associate with like the fresh linen bandages and stuff. He's been in a box for the last 4,000 years. He looks like shit. His skin is like leather. And it was really important to me to get those visuals right. And it's a lot easier to understand them if if you can actually see it For yourself. And like you sent me some pictures from when you went to an exhibit. I can't remember where it was. Was it the British Museum?
1: Yeah, it was in the British Museum. They had some really cool
0: looking mummies. So that was an influence. And Alexa, who we're interviewing in a few weeks about world building, she's massively into ancient Egypt. She's written a book series set there. And so she was a really good source of information as well. Like there was one bit where the sarcophagus was made of lead and she was actually like, no, it would be made of stone. And it'd be probably kind of plain because he's a nobody that they don't want anything to do with. And so that would influence certain things. And it was just really helpful. Even though I'm at the proofreading stage of The Mummy's Curse now, I'm still doing research. And I joined one the other day, which used to be The Great Courses Plus. And I found a really great course on ancient Egypt. And I've also started learning hieroglyphs because why not learn a dead language?
1: It's good fun. It's it's interesting, right? And that's what it's all about. But why now? Well, you know, And also, what's the difference between hieroglyphs and hieroglyphics? So hieroglyphics
0: is the adjective version of it. So you would say hieroglyphic handwriting. Hieroglyphs is the actual name of the writing itself. And I didn't know Wondrium had these courses on hieroglyphs or ancient Egypt. Otherwise, I would have watched them before. And I literally only got it yesterday. So it's not necessarily something that will be in the book. But it might influence future books because a lot of like magical traditions and things actually come from ancient Egypt, which I only discovered like two hours ago. And that's not necessarily relevant now, but it might be in future books and it can influence things I do. And if I do notice something when I'm going through and proofreading, I can always add it back in. Like I'm contemplating adding a joke in where when Neve casts a spell, the mummy makes a joke about the fact she didn't use a magic wand because they used magic wands that looked like boomerangs in ancient Egypt. And it's little things like that that A, grow your characters, but also B, bring things to life and may even spark your audience's interest in a particular subject like the mummy and my obsession with the mummy. Mummies, you know what I mean.
1: Absolutely. I love all those little bits and pieces you add into your characters that make them feel much more real. Thank you. And can we can we just take a moment
0: um, to talk about the mummy character? Because I know you love him. I know you love him. I love him. I love him so much. He was just fun to write. This is probably my most comedic book out of everything I have written. And that was intentional. I wanted him to be a comedy character. And I do want to lean into the comedy and the absurdity in the Afterlife Cause series. Because, you know, when you're around death every day, you do generally have quite a twisted sense of humour. Like, you just have to. So you're going to survive. How else are you going to stay sane if you don't laugh about the craziness around you? And it's certainly getting crazier and crazier, and even needy. And it's going to keep getting crazier.
1: Definitely. And that's what we're here for. We're here for the crazy antics of your characters. Obviously, you were doing research throughout... Writing the novel, did you find there were multiple different things you had to add in or change in the book as part of those uh, research sessions? Oh, loads, because I
0: actually wrote the first draft before I'd done any research on mummies and mummification in ancient Egypt, other than watching the mummy. I really do sound like a fangirl at this point. I might be. And you are.
1: You are the biggest mummy <laughs> fangirl. <laughs> I can't help
0: it. It's the fact it's set in the 1920s as well. And I'm obsessed with that era. It was a bunch of small things, but then it became bigger picture things as well. Like there was a scene when the mummy comes to life and originally he was afraid of Neve and the fact that she could cast spells, but that doesn't work because in ancient Egypt, they believed in magic. So I had to change that, even though I quite liked that comedic moment, it didn't fit with the way ancient Egyptians operated sometimes I noticed things that were my assumptions about Egyptian culture and actually they were completely wrong like actually the ancient Egyptians knew more than you thought about the human body but also they thought things like the brain was utterly useless and that's why they pulled it out during mummification doing the research as I went really helped and I do think it would have been better if I'd done it up front and outlining would have been useful in that regard because I would have known what I needed To research before I sat down to write, but because of that, it made it a bit more of a drawn-out process. I think, but still useful. And also, I enjoyed doing the research. It wasn't like it was a drag. Although paying fifty-four quid for a dictionary on hieroglyphs is kind of beyond the the budget for my research and what my brain can handle. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, fifty-four quid for a dictionary, but it's not a very common dictionary. I don't think.
1: Understandably. With regards to the sophomore something, how did you manage to avoid it going into into your second
0: book? I know I've talked about it already, but knowing what direction I was going in really helped. And writing that draft back to back with book one, because I finished the draft of book one and then went straight into the draft of book two, because they're set like a month apart. And so it really helped to have that direction where I was going. And I mentioned in previous episodes, I already know what's going to happen in like book seven and which characters I'm going to bring in and what who they're going to meet and what's going to happen with people's powers and stuff. And I've not necessarily got like full-on outlines for all those books. So I've got an outline for book four. But it helped me to know that it was going to be a four book arc for this kind of thing that happens, should we say? And I would say to anyone who is worried about struggling with their second book, particularly if it's a series or a longer series do outline it and try to get a draft of book two done before book one is out. And I know it'll be hard and you'll want to maintain the momentum with book one, but it's more important to maintain the momentum of book two because you don't know what's going to happen with book one. And if sales aren't what you expect, then you might feel disheartened and you might not want to write book two. But the things to remember actually is that your first book probably won't do that well on its own. It's when you've got a series that things will start to pick up And it's really hard to remember that when you're feeling shitty because you haven't sold anything for a month.
1: That's fair enough. So what would you say to someone who is stuck in that sophomore slump? Realize you're there
0: for starters, because I didn't realize it. My friend pointed it out to me and she already knew and she was just laughing at me when I had the epiphany. And it is a case of persevering. You do have to keep going, even when it feels really hard to maintain that motivation. But remember to be kind to yourself as well. Like if you are banging your head against a wall, don't keep banging your head against a wall. Don't keep doing the same thing and expecting different results. Try a different way of doing it, like write in smaller sections. Or if you have hit a certain point in your book and you don't know where to go next, maybe if you haven't planned it yet, it is time to plan it. Or maybe you need to do some more research on a particular topic or area that you cover in your books. And the other thing I would say is don't imitate my editing process, which I mentioned in the previous episode, which is to be completely haphazard. Do one chapter at a time and be much more methodical with it because it's easier then to know when to stop. Okay, I've edited a chapter, pat on the back, let's go eat some chocolate. You can't do that if you're jumping around. I would say being organized is the biggest thing I have really learned for getting over that heal, particularly for the second book, because I've heard so many creatives, musicians, filmmakers, writers talk about how hard the second book is. So it does make a difference. And the other thing is as well, if you can release book one and two closer, it actually benefits you more in algorithms and gets you more exposure because particularly Amazon, it has this thing where it gives your book a boost for the first 30 days that it's on sale and then it falls off a cliff. And then you get a bit of a boost for up to 90 days and then it just disappears basically unless you've already got some momentum. So if you are releasing regularly, it does help you to get that exposure and reach more readers. And if there is a massive gap in between your books, you are much more likely to find that you go very long periods of time without selling a single copy.
1: Fantastic. I think that's really useful information for our listeners. And I hope they got lots out of this episode.
0: I hope so. It's one of those things that's kind of an inevitability, but if you have the tools in place to avoid it, then it's not going to last as long.
1: Wise words to end on there. Thank you so much for sharing with us. Thank you for uh, letting me take over and talking (laughs) all about mummies. (laughs) it's a perfect episode
0: (laughs) i'm now gonna go and learn some more ancient egyptian no i'm not i'm gonna this i know i'm gonna listen to an episode of mummification first and then learn some more. did you find this episode enlightening don't forget to hit that shiny shiny subscribe button so that you never It's an
1: episode or if you're watching on youtube make sure you hit subscribe and hit the like button it really helps other writers find our videos and lets us know what kind of content you want more of and
0: don't forget you can support the writer's mindset over on patreon for less than your favorite coffee a month join
1: our growing gang of writers to get early access to episodes bonus content and monthly writing catch-ups with visit patreon.com forward slash writer's mindset to find out more Forget to check out our free Facebook group, which you can find at writerscoogle.com forward slash Facebook group. We're in there
0: every day talking all things writing, mindset, reading, and sometimes pets. So it'd be great to see you there. See you next time. Keep writing.